All right. Okay, enough of that. Enough of that friendliness. Just kidding. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being kind. Thanks for talking. Um, Matthew chapter 12. We, you know, you just, when you preach um, continuously, you get to fun parts and you can't, you know, it becomes obvious when you avoid the hard, the hard parts um, because then you'd skip over a couple verses and everyone would wonder what happened. This morning, we're gonna come to some, some hard parts, some confusing parts, some parts maybe you've wrestled with in the text and we'll wrestle together and see, see where God leads us. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter 12. Last week, we talked Sabbath, first 14 verses. This week, we're picking up in verse 15. We're gonna read it together. It's kind of tempting. You get to long sections and go, we're not gonna read it, we're just gonna start preaching, but you know, let's hear God's word. Let's just take a minute to hear God's word. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. If you need a Bible, we have some in the back, uh, in the middle little section there. We'd love, you can, you can have it. Matthew 12, 15. Jesus, let me back up because it says aware of this, and you might be like, what's he aware of? Verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But... The blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside speaking to, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Father, thank you for your word. It is good and we wanna receive it like that. So would you open up the eyes of our hearts so we could see the truth in here about who you are and who we are. It's in your name we pray, amen. Have you ever been criticized? How did you handle it when you were criticized? And was any of it helpful? Hard part about criticism for me personally is when it comes from a source uh, you're very opposed to, but there's some truth in the criticism. Because it's almost like you gotta swallow a humility pill to acknowledge that there's some truth in there and that even though this person you might disagree with, uh, you, you don't necessarily like them or you don't wanna align with them on other things, and maybe a lot of what they said wasn't true, but if there's any nugget of truth in their criticism, it kinda stings worse. It's hard for someone to tell you the truth about yourself. I think no matter what the source is, even if it's someone you love, it's difficult for someone to tell you the truth about yourself. Sometimes criticism can be helpful. Sometimes criticism can be offensive. Sometimes criticism can be ill-timed. And you think, just save that for another day. But I think in this passage, it's about telling the truth to ourselves about ourselves. It's also about telling the truth about who Jesus is and how those two things uh, interact with each other. The main idea that we're gonna look at in Matthew 12, verses 15 to 50 is this. How we respond to the truth about ourselves tells us how we'll respond to the truth about Jesus. How do you respond to the truth about yourself? What if Jesus is the one telling you the truth about yourself? How do you respond? Because that's an indicator of how you're actually gonna respond to Jesus. Here's where we're going this morning, a little roadmap. We're gonna look at hearts that are humble, hearts that are hard. We're gonna look at the heart of the earth and the heart of the family. So first, hearts that are humble. Verses 15 to 21. Hearts that are humble. Uh, Matthew, again, quotes the Old Testament. He does this a lot in his gospel. And the section he quotes, Isaiah 42, uh, is, is so powerful to describe the ministry of God's anointed Messiah when he would come. The servant of God is one who serves others. When he comes, he's not looking for a fight. He's not out arguing or crying aloud, yelling in the street for everyone to look at him making a big scene. He's not breaking the bruised or quenching the smoking wick. A Puritan, and we'll talk about him in a little bit as well, Richard Sibbs wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. It's, it's not very long. It was written a few hundred years ago, so you read it and you kind of have to put on your like high school English class lens to get through some of the English uh, prose that he uses, but it is such a wonderful book and it's taken from this passage right here. When there's a bruised reed, this is why I asked Brandon to read Psalm 88 this morning. When there's a bruised reed, 
You know the ministry of Jesus is not to crush it. When Psalm 88, did you pick up how dark that was? When that's your experience, Christ does not crush you. That's not the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't, uh, the, the wick that the flame has gone out but it's still smoking, he doesn't put it out completely. He's actually for those who are far off, the Gentiles, as opposed to Israel who was close, had the stories of the scriptures, had the law, had the testimony of how God had worked in and through their people for generations. But it says he comes as the hope of the Gentiles, of those who are far off. He comes for hearts that are humble and recognize their need. Those are the ones who are bruised. Those are the ones who are smoking. Those are the Gentiles who know that they're far off. So how is it that we can become humble? How can we actually become, like humility I think is a virtue that we want. How can we become humble? And I think what we see in this text is that Jesus tells us the truth about ourselves. The way we become humble is first to recognize the truth about us and then to recognize that the truth about us says that we have a great need that we can't meet. Richard Sibbs in that book, The Bruised Reed, talks about that the greatest bruises we have are not just from our life's situations and circumstances, but they're actually from our own sin where we've turned away from God and tried to control our lives or fix our lives by our own resources. When we recognize the truth about ourselves that Jesus tells us, we can recognize how great of a need we have. We recognize that without Jesus, we're in a real mess. Our need for forgiveness and grace is massive because we recognize our sin. Our need for comfort, we can almost seem inconsolable in this life. You could be surrounded by people you love and have gone through extremely difficult things and still go, why am I still so sad? Why am I still so discouraged? Our need for justice, justice is a very popular word right now in our world. We want justice, rightfully so. I think it's part of the image of God in us to want things to be made right. But when you've been wronged and you're seeking for justice, you realize how great of a need you have that you can't bring the justice that you long for. Or how about our need for life? Because we all recognize we're barreling towards death. And this is the story of the entire Old Testament, highlighting our need. The Old Testament is meant to make our mouth water for a solution to man's problems. And what it's meant to do is actually to humble us because we see our need and we recognize I can't meet my need. And it puts us in a place of being needy and being in a position where we're willing to receive some outside help. So does your need, when you recognize it, when you come face to face with it, does it lead you to Jesus or does it lead you to control? Because Jesus came for the hearts that are humble. That's, that's what verses 15 to 21 are showing us. This is the kind of savior who came. The truth about you is that you are wildly needy and the truth about Jesus is that he came for needy people. How do you respond to those truths? Jesus came for the hearts that are humble. But as we move on, we come to this very long section of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, giving some teaching, responding back to some of the questions that they had. And we see the hearts that are hard. In this section, I, I love that Jesus' power can't be denied. 
So instead of denying the power of what he was doing, they actually questioned the source of his power. So notice how Jesus responds very systematically as he talks back to them. Now, he speaks to them logically. Hey, logically, you know a kingdom divided can't stand. So what good would it do me if I really were Satan to cast out my own demons? Like that logically doesn't make any sense. A kingdom divided can't stand. He speaks to them experientially. He says, your sons do this. He doesn't literally mean like they're biological sons. He means your own people. Hey, the Jewish people cast out demons. I've seen it happen. You've seen it happen. He speaks to their experience, but he also speaks to them personally. Right? He speaks to them personally as he says, look, what you're saying with your mouth is a reflection of what's in your heart. What you're saying with your mouth is a reflection of what's in your heart. A tree is known by its fruit. Jesus says that their accusations, that he is Satan, actually come out of who they are. It reveals who they are. Their hearts were so hardened and closed that they could not even recognize God's work. So they got it confused with the work of Satan. Now, I actually think there's something for us to learn there. There's actually something that's commendable in what they did. Because so many of us, so many people in our world today would love a squishy middle for Jesus. And I've referenced this from C.S. Lewis before, but I'm gonna read a little bit about what he said about that. C.S. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Verse 30 is kind of the key to this text. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutrality in our response to Jesus. That's what C.S. Lewis was saying. That's what Jesus himself was saying, and that's what the Pharisees are showing. There's no neutrality. They either submitted to who Jesus said he was or they had to go so far to say, you must be Satan yourself. So at least they're trying to be consistent because they're saying, we don't believe you're God, so our only other option, because we see your works, we hear your teaching, if you're not God, you you must be Satan himself. Because Jesus cannot be just merely a good teacher or assistant. Tim Keller uh, quotes uh, a lady that worked for InterVarsity Collegiate Ministry who taught him to study the Bible and she would teach on the Lordship of Christ and she would lay out kind of this couple minute teaching on who Jesus was and she would end by saying, do you invite someone like this in your life to be your assistant? And the obvious answer is not at all. There's no neutrality, right? But a hard heart, a hard heart can't receive the truth about who Jesus is and a hard heart also can't receive the truth about who they are. Remember the key difference between hard hearts and humble hearts is that grace is a lifeline to the humble. But to the hard hearts, the proud hearts, they don't need grace. And this is precisely what this unforgivable sin is all about. And this can be challenging. 
to read a part where Jesus himself is saying, there's something that I won't forgive. But when you look at the verse, it actually seems contradictory because he begins by saying, This is verse 31. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So what is it, Jesus? Will you forgive everything, or will you forgive everything except for this one thing? What are we to make of that? I think what Jesus is saying is is essentially this. He's saying, I'll forgive every sin and every blasphemy, every one you could ever imagine. Try me. I have forgiveness for it. The only thing that I can't forgive, the only way you won't experience my forgiveness is if you slander my forgiving spirit and my ability to forgive everything. If you fail to believe that I am the all-forgiving one, then you'll never experience my forgiveness. He's not saying that there's some level of sin you can do that then all of a sudden he's like, I don't have grace for that, I don't have forgiveness. That's not at all what Christ is saying. What he's actually saying is, that you can put yourself outside the possibility of that forgiveness if our hearts are so hardened to his ability to forgive. And remember who it is he's speaking to, not broken, humble-hearted sinners. He's speaking to the prideful religious Pharisees, those who didn't recognize their need, those who didn't recognize their need for grace or for mercy or for forgiveness at all. We don't have any record of Jesus speaking this to people that were coming to him humbly recognizing their need. So if you're afraid of committing this unforgivable sin, then rest assured that very fear assures that you're not in danger of that. Because it means your heart is not hard toward Jesus, but you're actually coming to him humbly. You're not callous to your own fallibility and your own sin. The spirit has led you to the truth about yourself and He's trying to get you to embrace that humble heart. Tim Keller says that this unforgivable sin, it's not that you are unforgivable, but it's more so that you are unrepentable. Because your heart has been so hardened to the good news message of Jesus that you would stand opposed to him to say either, I don't need the forgiveness you offer, or your forgiveness can't cover what I've done both of which are not true. The ones with hard hearts don't respond to grace. It's not a lifeline to them. It might be terrifying to them to admit that they need grace because it would be a threat to their identity. But the status of your heart will determine how you respond to Jesus. If you have a hard heart, You'll see Jesus and you won't be able to deny some truths about him, just like the Pharisees. You'll see the truth. You'll see the power. You'll see the way he interacted with the lowly and the poor. And you might admire that. You might hear some of his teaching and say, that sounds good. That sounds right. I'd like to be like that. But if you're humble hearted, you won't just want to explain the idea of grace. You won't just want to explain some aspects of Jesus. You'll want to experience everything that he's talking about because that is your only hope for life. If you have a hard heart, you won't be able to see his gentle grace as a lifeline for you. And that's, that's exactly what we've talked so much that there's constant comparisons going on in the gospel, especially in narratives. So on the one hand, you have him saying, look, I've come, not gonna break the bruised reed. I'm fulfilling Isaiah 42. He is a gentle savior. 
And then he turns around to the proudly religious with some of his harshest words about the lack of forgiveness that they're going to experience. And there's meant to be a comparison there. Which one are you? Do you recognize your own need? Jesus is here telling you the truth about yourself, that you have a great need, that you can't fix on your own. Will you come to him with that need and let his grace be a lifeline for you? Or are our hearts too hard? You know, there's so many reasons we can have a hard heart, right? I really do think you, you can have such a low and difficult view of yourself that you would imagine, I can't bring these things to Christ. There's no way. Hey, I've experienced Christ's so-called people and they've not been quite as accepting of what I've struggled with. Hey, I've had questions that they told me we don't ask. I've had beliefs they told me we don't hold. I've I've struggled with sin that they told me not here. And so I'm, I'm not gonna come back to this Jesus who they say they worshiped because he clearly doesn't have the forgiveness for me. And you feel like you're too far gone. But on the other side of that, we can see Jesus and we can place ourselves kind of in the same vein as the Pharisees. And go, man, all that radical grace stuff, like I'm, like I'm at church a good percentage of the time. I'm pretty much in line with like I'm not hurting. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty religious. I spend time in the Bible regularly. I'm praying regularly. I serve Shalford has way too many kids, and so look, I do my duty, I get back there, and I I do the thing with kids. Like, I know I need some help, but I don't need that kind of radical grace, right? I mean, that's, I don't know that I would say I'm a bruised reed. I mean, yeah, I, I go through some hard times, but I don't know that I need that kind of grace. Both of those people are placing themselves outside the bounds of what Jesus wants to lavish on you. Lavish is a Bible word. Christ wants to lavish his infinite grace and mercy on you. But if you think you're outside the need of it because you've got life kind of figured out, you're controlling this thing good enough, or if you come over here on this side and you think you're so far gone, there's things you've done, believed, said, acted out in your life that put you outside of his ability to forget, no, no, no. You need to come and believe the first part of that verse. There is nothing that he will not forgive. And you say, how? How can that be true? How can that be true that there's nothing he won't forgive? Because I I don't believe that. There's things in my own heart I can't forgive myself for. How, How in the world could God forgive me? How can that be true? And maybe you say, just like the people in this text, teacher, we wanna see a sign. Give me a sign. Give me a sign that will make me know that it's safe to come to you for forgiveness. Give me some sign, and Jesus, in a way that only he could, gives the best non-answer you could ever give. And this is our third point this morning on the heart of the earth. Jesus says, you wicked sinners. He only says that to people that don't recognize they're wicked sinners, okay? You wicked sinners, you're not getting a sign. How about this? Why don't you take the sign of Jonah? Well, what happened to Jonah? Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh with 
the gospel, the good news that they could find repentance and forgiveness and grace in Yahweh. And he didn't want to go. He, didn't li- he did not like the people of Nineveh. Jonah was a, was a nationalist if there ever was one. The only other record we have of Jonah is in the book of Kings when he's telling the king, hey, God's going to expand the borders of Israel. He is a patriot. I don't want to go to Nineveh to tell them that they can partake in the same blessings of our God? No. So he runs away and in this miraculous turns of events gets thrown off the ship because there's such an awful storm, swallowed by a fish for three days and spit back out to where he finally, kicking and screaming, goes to Nineveh, says, look, you're gonna have the wrath of God poured out on you here soon unless you repent. They all repent. Jonah goes and sits under a tree to sulk that they repented And he said, God, I knew this would happen because I know how loving you are. It makes me sick that they received your love. You're so loving, I wish wish you didn't love them like this. I knew they would come to you if they heard how good you were. So what's the sign? Jesus says, you get the sign of Jonah. What's the sign? Well, the sign of Jonah, probably not the message of Jonah, but the sign of Jonah was this miraculous middle where he's tossed off the ship, swallowed by a fish, and spit back out. That seems to be the turning point in Jonah's life where he begins to obey what God called him to do. And Jesus says that the Son of Man, Jesus himself, will spend three days and nights not in the belly of a fish, but in the heart of the earth. Now, how does this help us understand how Jesus responds to people? How does this serve as a sign for those who, maybe like you, are going, can you prove to me how forgiving Jesus is. It'll help to listen to the words of David Pallison about forgiveness. Forgiveness also looks wrong in the eye. In other words, the reason he was saying that was forgiveness is not sweeping under the rug. Forgiveness is not saying it's okay. Forgiveness is not ignoring how bad something was or how much it hurt. It looks wrong in the eye. By definition, it names wrong for what it is and feels the sting. Then forgiveness consciously acts unfairly in return. Anger is all about fairness. However accurate or distorted our perceptions of fairness might be, but forgiveness is mercifully unfair. You choose not to give back what only seems fair and just and equitable or reasonable. Instead, recognizing that a debt is owed, it forgives the debt. Forgiveness, which Jesus promised, is costly. Forgiveness is mercifully unfair because it chooses not to act in the way that would be fair for all of us, which would be for Jesus to see us weary and heavy laden and say, carry your own pack. The good Southern saying of, you made your bed, now lie in it. But Jesus, by saying that, he's gonna embrace the sign of Jonah and that the son of man is gonna do something greater than that, something greater than Jonah's here. But I'm gonna actually spend three days and nights in the heart of the earth. What he's saying is that the forgiveness that I'm offering you, it, it will be costly. I'll pay for it. He sees the debt that is owed because of our sin and our impending death and he becomes the greater Jonah by going to the cross and dying and spending three days and nights in the tomb for us when Jesus tells us the truth about ourselves and shows us our great need he does not leave the burden on our back to bear 
How many of you have had a religious experience in some community of faith where you were told the truth about you and then you were told to leave carrying that same burden? How many of you have come to a place where you were told you were welcomed into the presence of Jesus only to leave more burdened than when you got there? I would implore you, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and tell me one time that's what Jesus does. But Jesus, Jesus has the boldness to tell you the truth about yourself. Not so that you walk away with that burden. Not so that you can go think about what you've done. Not so that you can figure out if you're strong enough to carry that burden and make your way through life with that burden and see if you can slowly uh, take some things out of that pack and make it a little lighter for yourself. He tells you the truth about yourself and how impossibly heavy that burden is just so you can recognize what he carried for you as he went into the heart of the earth to die on your behalf. Jesus takes it on himself. Jesus is mercifully unfair to us. Jesus is so wonderfully unfair to us that everything we deserve, he does not give us. And everything we do deserve, he takes for himself. When Jesus sees the hard hearts, and, and here's, here's the beauty of it, the way Jesus saves those with humble hearts is he submits to the will of those with hard hearts. You say, what does that mean? When Jesus sees the hard hearts with increasing anger towards them, that's what's happening, right? That's what's happening in verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They're ready to kill him because like C.S. Lewis said, that, that's all you can do with a man who's making these kinds of claims. When Jesus sees the hearts that are hard getting harder and he sees them uh, wanting to argue, wanting to pick fights, he doesn't go fight them in the street, remember? Isaiah 42, he's gentle. He's not quarreling. He's not crying aloud. When he sees hard hearts getting harder with increasing anger towards them, instead of fighting them, he willfully submits to dying by their hands. Jesus dies at the hands of the hard-hearted. Not only does Jesus not break the bruised and quench the smoking, but Jesus is broken in their place. And this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus in your place and you in his. The point of this is not just that Jesus is a peaceful protester or a conscientious objector who quietly dies at the hands of the violent, setting a good example for all of us how to quietly make our way through, through this life. The point is that the death of Jesus at the hands of the violent opposition of the Pharisees and the Roman Empire was that it was a death in our place. And that's the crux of the message this morning, and I think that's the crux of the passage is this sign of Jonah. Do you have humble hearts and you have hard hearts and you say, what's the difference? How do I do this? How do I believe that he's that forgiving? You can believe that he's that forgiving because he paid the price. He did that for you. But then we come to the end of this passage and we see him talk about uh, the heart of the family. 
His family's out. I've always wrestled with this, Pat. It's so weird. Hey, your mom and your siblings are outside. And you go, no, these are my mom and my siblings. It's like, okay, but they're still outside. We just say the Bible can be weird sometimes. You can read that and you're like, that just seems unhelpful at best. Like, what's, what's his point? So again, we're teaching our kids in the class to ask I wonder questions that intentionally have no answer in the text. So I wonder if after that he was like, ah, just get, you bring him in, you know? Like, I was just proving a point, but yeah, you can bring him in, you know? When it's his mom, he cares about his mom to the end. He speaks about her on the cross. So uh, I just needed to say, like, humanize this whole thing. That's odd, okay? We say that sometimes at Chalford. We love this. This is authority. It's got weird stuff in it. We can say that. We don't have to deny that. Here. Safe place for that. They say, your mother and your brother's outside. He's like, no, these are my, my mother and my brothers. And then he, here's the punchline. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So the family of Jesus is not his blood relatives. It's not his genealogy. It's going up his family tree. His family is made up of those who do the will of God. What does that mean? Well, in this passage, we see that those who are closest to doing the will of God are actually the humble and the broken and the non-religious. We see those who are closest to doing the will of God are not at all the, the proud, the hard-hearted, those who have a great spiritual resume. The will of God that he's looking for is, is the humility of the bruised reed. You say, what's the will of God? Go stand in the way of Jesus. And when he is moving with his hurricane force winds of grace and mercy, go stand and receive it. That is how you get in the middle of the will of God. He said, whoever does the will of God is my family. I would imagine, I wonder if there's some people in the room who are going, so what? So what's the will of God? And give me, give me the list. I'll do it. I mean, it's like the guy who says like, and I've, I've <laughs> you love this guy. Jesus, I've followed all the commandments. Like, what else is there for me to do? Like, really? I mean, or he says, what, what is there for me to do to get into eternal life? And he's like, well, you know, obey the commandments. I did all that. I love that guy. Because <laughs> that's some of us sometimes, right? Only those who do the will of God. Those are my family. What is it? Like, I'm ready to read my Bible every day, Jesus. I'm ready to pray as much as I can. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to give. What, tell me, what is the will of God? You know, you share the gospel twice a week? Like, what, what's the will of God? Tell me, and I'll do it. And if you read this in the context of all of chapter 12, what you understand is that the will of God is not you taking a burden on for his sake. That's not it. The will of God is you taking off your burden and coming to Jesus and letting him be God for you. That is the will of God. So who's in? Like at the end of the day, sometimes, don't you just want to ask that about the kingdom? Or you want to ask that about the family of God? You want to go, so who's in and who's out? <laughs> How do I make sure I'm in? It's not that the good are in and the bad are out. It's that the humble are in and the proud are out. So to humble ourselves before this Jesus means that we put ourselves in his way to receive his grace. His grace to you this morning, an idea to be explained. 
Or is grace something that you need to experience? Not grace in the abstract, but grace for you, for what you've done, for who you are, for your bruises, for your brokenness. That's how Jesus wants you to receive his grace, not learn about it. It means that we acknowledge the truth that he tells us about ourselves. It means we come to terms with how great our need is. This morning, I'd like to end with some time of just reflection, some questions. So if we can, just in an attitude of prayer, I'm gonna speak these questions over us, and I'd like to just give you a couple minutes to think about them. How have you felt the weight of your need before God? In what ways have you felt the weight of your need before God? Is there anything that you are not trusting God to forgive? Can you merely explain God's grace or have you experienced God's grace? Does your heart move to worship the Savior who would die for you? Jesus, we thank you for this word, for these stories put in this order, in this book, written by men, yet inspired by the Holy Spirit that would be protected through the years, passed down to us so that we could have this as a revelation of who you are, God. This is who you are. And Jesus, what's hard for us is to understand all the other ways we thought you were, all the other ways we wanted you to be, all the other ways we were told you were. And God, we've got to hold that up to the light of this word and be willing to work through and even undo some of those other experiences we had about you. But this morning, we're here to worship this God the real God. We want to worship you, Jesus. And we worship you because of how incredibly gracious you are to those who need it. As you tell us the truth about ourselves this morning, Jesus, and we come face to face with our need, I pray that we would respond in humility and not try to go fix it on our own, but actually come to you with open hands to receive your great grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.